The technology landscape is exploding, and it has never been a better time to be an entrepreneur. There's so much information out there, it can be hard to know where to start or who to trust. Your host, David Paul, is a seasoned venture capital investor that has founded his own investment firm, DWP Capital. He's a straight shooter that cuts through all the noise to bring you real and authentic conversations with investors, founders, and operators in the startup ecosystem. Join him each week to stay current with today's trends and get smarter about startups and tech investing. Today, I am interviewing Jerry Pence, the founder of Balance Capital Partners, which is a sponsor-led PE fund in Scottsdale, Arizona. Jerry is a two-time Ivy Leaguer. He did a stint in Big Four Consulting. He ran two private equity divisions for the Najafi Family Office here in Arizona, where he produced eight times cash on cash. Now, running Balance Capital Partners, he focuses on lower middle market PE with a focus on growth, and he has a unique spin entirely on the private equity space. Jerry, how are you doing? I'm good. Thank you. How are you doing? Uh, I'm doing well, thanks. I'm doing well, thanks. Um, when's the next time you're going to Costa Rica? This coming summer, we are going to go down in July for a couple of weeks, which uh, honestly kind of is a little painful because we used to go down for a month. But now with the kids uh, being in high school and all their sports, it's like uh, I can only leave my professional chauffeuring job so much and I got to get back here and drive them around to do things. So, uh, but yeah, looking forward to it because we didn't go last year because of COVID. So it's been a couple of years, will have been a couple of years since we went down to what my wife calls her happy place. And I agree with her. Yeah. See, I would just tell my kids to shove it. I would 100% take all of that. Um, I mean, there's plenty of times where like they've already extorted you to the max amount of your personal and financial obligations. It's time for you to think about Jerry. It's only getting worse, dude. It's not even going the right way. <laughs> dude, I, uh, I heard something, someone said that the other day that when kids reach a certain age, you stop becoming a parent and you start becoming a consultant, meaning that like they only listen to about 30% of what you say. Would you agree with that? Based on my car ride this morning, taking my son to school, 30% might be uh, on the high side because I think we squared in at around uh, 5 to 10% this morning. 5 to 10%. Like he acknowledges you and that's about it. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Exactly. So, Jerry, tell me about what you're working on right now. Honestly, working on kind of a diverse set of things. Um, I am doing a lot of customer discovery uh, for Balanced Capital Partners. And that was because I spent a year and three months, gosh, 15 months running one of my portfolio companies. So I'm coming out, instead of just jumping in to do deals, I'm kind of doing customer discovery, interviewing bankers and private equity guys and VC guys and lenders and you know executives I admire and going to conferences, kind of just asking the question, what the hell's going on? I know prices have gotten higher, but what's going on that people like that don't like what's really, you know, going on in the market, trying to get that pulse so I can uh, jump into doing uh, deals, eyes wide open, so to speak. Uh, you and I are collaborating quite a bit 
and so spending time there and then just random opportunistic stuff comes my way. And so um, I know you and I mentioned it, but, uh, you know, right now there is a, uh, a South Korean capital uh, fund that wants me to evaluate being part of them. And they're going to raise a couple billion dollars in capital and want me to, you know, be part of that team. And, you know, I were talking about stuff like this always comes our way. And some of the, most of the time I kind of just shun it. Well, away let's be clear. Let's, let's, let's be clear, Jerry. No one has ever asked me to help deploy a couple billion dollars. So I think the credit, <laughs> this is, this is a problem unique to you. Uh, not many people have like just inbound requests from Koreans asking to help deploy capital in the United States. That's not very common. You're saying <laughs> not, not to me. No one, no one asked me to do that. I'm, 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 I'm around singing. To... I'm singing around with a tin cup for a hundred grand from rich guys in Scottsdale. And you're, uh, you know, you're, you're, you know, beating off sovereign wealth funds for billion dollars at a time. Well, let's be clear. My normal world is the same. You know, you say alms for the growth uh, equity and I say alms for the lower middle market. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me a little bit about um, jump from private equity investing within the family office construct into balanced capital partners and what led to that leap and, uh, you know, you know, dot, dot, dot. The, the thing that drove the initial thinking was you know, the family offices I was a part of, the Najafis, they're, they're kind of special situations, distressed investors kind of at, at core. They're value guys at core. A special situation, like another word for just like, is that just trying to like make the, the person who's involved in that company feel better about themselves without saying distressed? No, honestly, special situation is just story. Distressed is distressed. There's actually, <laughs> when you get... When you get into that world, distress means you are just pouncing and you're pound, you're buying by the pound. All it is. is <laughs> it's like fish. Literally. It's, it's I'm, like fish I'm that's using, about to go bad. Yeah. And I'm using words that behind the scenes, these guys use. It's all about like arbitrage, but they don't say arbitrage. It's I'm going to buy by the pound. And it's literally if I buy it for 20 cents, I can sell it for 40 cents. And it's, wow. it has nothing to do with the operations per se. It's all about like arbitrage and liquidation of assets and things like that. Where special situations is like, hey, there's something here. It's all messed up right now, but I can get in and work with it and maybe turn it around and the industry will be better going forward. Or if I clean up the balance sheet, we can work with it. So it's like light distressed. Uh, but there really is a, at least in my mind. When and there's a glimmer of hope with that one. Yes. Now, and so does story mean that? Is that like we're telling a story that this is actually better than it probably is? Yeah. In other words, you're convincing yourself that uh, the reason you're getting a cheap price, that there's real value there versus cheap getting expensive. (laughs) I like it. Okay. And and honestly, when I left, uh, I just realized I wasn't a value guy in the traditional sense of value. I, I, I became to believe that value is relative. And I love being in, in environments that are more about growth and creation and, you know, positivity. And so you can buy something in a growth setting and you can say, oh my God, it's crazy expensive. Or you can say, hey, I'm getting good value relative to the opportunity here versus just say that good value only comes because 
you know, it's two times EBITDA, not, you know, nine times EBITDA. And that's kind of how the legacy value guys look at it. And it's just the day-to-day there is challenging. People aren't happy. Things have not gone right. Uh, in order to resolve- it Seems like everyone's them, pretty stressed out, right? Yeah, your job, your livelihood, your ego- and to resolve them, in, it's not an alignment of interest setting. It's in, in many ways a zero-sum game. And that's kind of what growth to me a lot of times is the ability to have alignment of interest so that I can wear the same jersey you're wearing and we both win in a growth. It's more probable you can do that in growth setting than you can in distressed and special situation setting. You step out of the Najafi family office, which was more distress, vessel sit, basically one one decision to rule them all with, you know, being kind of a patriarchal, you know, investment committee setup. I've heard you talk about having a really unique view on private equity. And, you know, it's it really is a very candid view where you basically stated that private equity is bullshit. And I'd love for you to kind of expound and tell the audience about what, what that actually means. Again, it's just my perspective and, and maybe it's self-serving because, uh, you know, it, it leads to the kind of investment philosophy that, that I'm sure we'll talk about. But what I think is that private equity is not actually in private equity anymore. I believe they're in asset management. And the reason I say that is they're really simply allocating capital to collect fees and the fees are where they're getting generationally wealthy. They're not getting wealthy on the 20% upside on the two and 20 that they used to make by, you know, helping the companies with strategy and adding value. They say and taking, and taking risk, right. And, and taking a little bit more risk and taking more risk. And they, if, if they, they were on here, they'd be saying to me, that's not true. That's bull crap, all this stuff. And because they, they talk an amazingly good game. But when I see what they do is deploy, raise bigger and bigger funds so that the 2% becomes just crazy amounts of money. And the way they manage 20% upside is like you're saying, just to, just to come in the pack. They don't want to be below it. They don't want to take the risk to be above it. If they're right in the middle of the pack, it's just the metric that justifies the next fund that's bigger to generate the 2%. So they're renting money from institutional investors, getting generationally wealthy on the 2% and not taking the risk as entrepreneurs to go forward. So I think it's just a, it's an asset management commoditized industry because that's why they don't innovate around the model of deploying the capital because they don't want to innovate. They're, you know, they've got an amazing thing going. So why innovate and take all this risk on the operating companies and strategy and operating plans and culture and you know leadership and all this stuff? They only really jump in and do it when things have gone wrong. And oftentimes when things have gone wrong, they actually just cut their losses and exit to another opportunity because they've got like 10 to 20 of them. And so being able to get out of one when you're in a blind fund as an investor, well, that's just something you don't talk about. It didn't really happen. It was okay. It wasn't that bad. And then you focus on the stuff that is good. Why? Because that's what helps you make your 2% that's still there. And overall, as long as you're 
carried interest returns and overall returns come into the middle of the pack, by middle of the pack, I mean the top quartile, it's enough of a metric to justify the next fund that you're raising. And so they're really just financial engineers, capital allocators, uh, not wanting to be um, anything but rinse and repeat on the model. Does that make sense? Yeah. And you only have to be as good as uh, the top quartile. You just yeah. have to be good right, right in that right in that mix. Because if I have to if I have to hear we have a playbook one more time, I'm gonna fucking vomit. Yeah, I mean when when uh, the the private equity guys in, in many ways, you know, they they just they say they have a playbook. They all talk the same game, but at the end of the day, they're just allocating capital in in because they're making a ton of money allocating capital. <laughs> and then what about the culture around that? Well, I believe that the culture is the very reason why it's, it's kind of like this manic depressive thing. In other words, young guys come into private equity. They do all of the work. The founders and legacy guys leverage all these smart guys doing all of the work and have these amazing, they have the amazing lifestyle. They're getting generally, generationally wealthy on the 2%, not doing any of the work, letting their young guys do the work. And they keep raising, you know, they're, they're the front guys, the face, the, the track record guys, and they raise bigger and bigger funds. Well, the culture in there is is never good. I mean, if you put truth serum in any private equity guy, I challenge you to find a private equity guy who says, I love where I work. Now, they may say, I love what I do, <laughs> right. but they never say, I love where I work. And that's what leads to the splintering of these young guys saying, screw this. I'm the one doing all the work required to make this thing go. And then they spin off and create their own platform and chase for the same uh, model. Why? Because they want that 2% to get generationally wealthy. And so far, rinse and repeat on this dynamic of capital allocation, 2% money, generationally wealthy, toxic cultures inside of their firms because they're saying, oh, well, I, I had to bear it. Now I'm going to make sure I get it. And then guys splinter out of that. Well, the irony is that all this splintering splintering is what causes everyone to have a lot more competition with capital, you know, chasing this uh, limited set of opportunities. And these guys are just forcing the prices to go up in many ways in this kind of self-fulfilling way. And at some point, it's going to break their 2% gravy train that they're all, you know, getting on because at some point you can't just keep paying higher prices and making the returns that they market, they say they get. Uh, and that's another story where I think it's good marketing by these private equity guys versus on the returns they get versus what they really get. So let's talk about that. Whenever someone says, well, we could talk about that later, that's like when we should actually probably get into that because I think it's usually a pretty good topic. So tell me, what 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 do you mean by that? Like what is what what it is the returns me. historically and what is what 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 can you um and I believe completely with what you said, all it takes is a disenfranchised principal and a rich uncle to start a new fund. I mean, there's no barriers to entry in this business. And right. all you're doing is just getting a bunch of pissed off people that are bidding up deals and a more of a fragmentation in the business and more commoditization of, of, of the space. So <clears throat> let's talk about returns now, because I think that's super important. The analogy I use is going back to my investment banking days when I just got out of college and I worked at Lehman Brothers. 
And Lehman Brothers back then uh, doesn't exist anymore because it blew up in you know 2009 and 10 with the uh, mortgage stuff. But it was always like a very strong fixed income house. Yet it had investment banking and it would you know do fine investment banking, but it was always like fifth. On the on the league tables, right? There'd be Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, Merrill Lynch, blah blah blah. Well, I would show you deck after deck that I created that showed us number one <laughs> because we would slice and dice the data right. in a way that would actually mathematically show. Oh, it's only you know these times frame for deals this size, and you know in, in these sectors, whatever it might be. And I knew I was solving for my ability to show us as number one. That's what happens with private equity returns. They slice and dice the data in order to say, this is my return because they don't focus on the entire, like I deployed this much capital. I got this much back. And therefore over my entire track record, here's the return actual versus unrealized. If I hear the word unrealized return again, you should run for the hills if you're an investor in private equity and it's all unrealized uh, this or that. Because what that means is they're just faking whatever the unrealized return is and they're telling you it's going to be something great versus asking uh, what you should ask for is what is your actual return? Cash what on cash. Cash right. on cash. Exactly. Right. I always looked at, you know, I always ask really what's the best way to look at a you know, analyzing a fund return. And someone told me this, these kind of heuristics. And let me know if you think that this is true. You look at your realized cash on cash, you look at your unrealized cash on cash or like return, and then a blended of the two. And then you kind of look at those three different benchmarks and you kind of make your decision on the performance of the fund manager. I agree, but don't weight them the same. Mm, okay. In other words, weight... 80% on the cash on cash realized returns. The reality is there's unrealized returns, but discount them greatly because that's where all the hocus pocus marketing stuff comes in. Because no one's ever going to say, I'm going to get a negative 10 on that one. That's awesome. You know, because <laughs> right. let's say that you were going to get 90 cents on the dollar to equate that to negative 10%. Well, you're not going to write it that way. You're going to say, I'm going to get your money back or I'm going to make 10% return when you're doing the unrealized calculation. So there's always a bias towards rounding up, a bias to things will get better, a bias to I'm raising capital here. And if I, I am truthfully honest, I have less of a chance of raising capital right now. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so so is, there, is there ever a situation, because I'm in the growth world where unrealized gains are essentially how people <laughs> raise money uh, you know, effectively in its entirety in, in venture capital. And there's generally not um, any debt or any type of you know audits that need to take place, at least in the early stages. From your experience, is there ever a reason why a private equity uh, fund manager would mark down their investment if there wasn't another pricing event that happens? Meaning, like, is there ever an event, like, from a banking perspective, that you would say, "Well, you know, we did price it at this. However, the current company's current performance does not reflect today's price," or is it? just ride on that unrealized last price until something happens. I've never heard a conversation like you just described. Um, you know, I think if it does ever happen, it's in the KKR, Blackstone, Silver Lake world where, you know, you're in fund nine and, 
you know, you're constantly going um, and marking your portfolio companies and going up. But I think even then you're never asked to, well, let's go back and audit what you said three years ago and see what, uh, if you recalculate everything where you'd be at right now. Um, I think it happens a little bit where comp portfolio company X was in fund seven. It's also, you know, in your portfolios, you're raising fund eight. So you had marketed a certain way in fund seven. It's marketed differently in eight. But who out there is looking at the materials that were distributed in fund seven versus the materials that are distributed in fund eight and cross checking and asking, well, you said it was 17% here and now you're saying it's 7% for unrealized. Why, why the, you know, 65, 70% drop in return, uh, anticipated return. I don't think that the, the data is as readily transparent, uh, as you would, uh, think it could be because um, the private equity guys optimize to show you what they want you to see. No, I completely agree with that. You know, I was actually just listening to a podcast this weekend. Um, so do you, you, don't, you don't think that any of the big institutional players that are allocating capital, these funds of funds that are really scrutinizing managers, you don't think there's any type of um, uh, framework they look at, you know, what did you say was going to happen a couple of years from now? Um, you don't think that any of these guys are getting any smarter? I think that they don't tee it up that way. I think it's on the onus of the investor to do their diligence, to frame it back up and, and force that conversation on the private equity firm, if anyone. And I haven't heard it ever happening. I'm sure it does happen, but the private equity guys will never you know, talk, oh, this guy got me. <laughs> yeah, that's not something that's widely talked about. Yeah, no, they, they caught me. Yeah. <laughs> Oops. Oops. Right. So definitely not something that is, um, I'm sure it's spoken about probably in the institutional level of the, you know, the allocators, the pensions. I'm sure there's an inner circle of people that, oh, they, yeah. that yeah. they talk about. And I think um, they know too, you know, that unrealized, let's say unrealized was, oh, I'm going to get. 25% unrealized. Well, they all know that the actual returns are whatever, 16, you know, 17%, 15%, whatever it is. And they allow that game to be played as long as there are alternatives for deploying their capital into other mechanisms is not 15, 16, 17%. Well, right. And their returns that they're I mean, I would say that the institutions and I'm just learning about this and how that game is played a little bit just through education is that their net IRRs and net returns, speaking from the institutional level, is actually a lot higher than what it's actually being spoken about because they have co-investment rights, you know, they have special side letters. So, you know, they can literally you know, shift, you know, those returns, you know, in a way that's much more favorable to them just by the, you know, sheer volume that they have from dollars. Yeah. And in some ways, that's why, you know, maybe they look the other way because it's almost like, you know, like when you and I talk about, you know, being able to get, sorry, what's the term, uh, not the preferred return, but the, the, uh, what is the, uh, the term you guys use in growth equity when you get the first money out? one times or two times participation. Yeah. It's like the funds getting their equivalent of participation rights 
through these co-investments or side deals and the way they structure them to juice up their returns um, allows them to get better than 15, 16, 17%. So they don't need to make sure the world knows that the private equity guys are distorting their numbers because they're getting what they want and they need the private equity guys to continue to live and thrive. So the relationship continues to work and they continue to get sidecar opportunities and structured opportunities because it's a big boys game. It's really what secondaries first right on secondaries at a yeah. discount. Yeah. And it's a big boys game is really what I'm saying is like KKR has two, three, four, five relationships of huge guys that get these preferential rights. You and me don't if we just are allocating capital through some, you know, hundred thousand dollar, you know, at a time allocation into some vehicle that gets access into KKR. No, we're just along for the ride, but we're not along for the ride in the Ferrari. We just got to sit in the back of the uh, KKR. You know, yeah, we got to look bus. at the we, we got to look at the Ferrari. Yeah, they Maybe. told us about. Yeah, they they told us they told us about their playbook. And you know, we got to look at it. From we got to see a picture of the Ferrari. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. How's Balance Capital Partners different? You know, I just uh, my whole model is that I really don't. People say I'm in private equity, but I don't. I don't see myself that way. So Balance Capital Partners is really in the business. I'm an entrepreneur, and I invest as an entrepreneur, but what I believe creates money is, you know, the reason Balanced Capital Partners is called Balanced is that you have to invest money into a company that has, uh, you know, I focus on growth and and technology uh, similar to you, but I I started the private equity stage. So I need a a business that has some sort of technological advantage, um, you know, competitive advantage to others. But I just think that that's table stakes. In today's fast-moving technology environment, distributed information everywhere, that edge in technology is not something I can invest in and believe is sustainable. It's necessary, but the other side of the balance there is the leadership. And I think that if you have outstanding leaders combined with the outstanding technology, that's how you get alpha. It's the balance of the two, or as I say, it's the balance of the soft stuff and the hard stuff that creates the alpha. So I diligence and make sure that there's technology there that has value that's distinctive, et cetera. But where I spend much more of my time is diligencing the leadership and the culture to make sure that that has distinction and advantages, because that's a lot harder thing for me anyway, to determine uh, what's unique, what's value add, what's better than not. But in my investment experience, if you have the two, like I said before, that's where you generate alpha because you have the combination of two, not just one. Because one, one, if you have great leaders and not a technical advantage, that's not enough either. That's just the kumbaya party, you know? That's a lot of high fives. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, so tell me about your first deal. So my first deal, in many ways, uh, luckily now fits the balanced capital partners model, but the the path traveled certainly wasn't as um, did the first deal in March of 2019. And 
It's a company called Saida, and they do data science and custom software through projects or uh, on demand, meaning staff augmentation. And they do it to Fortune 500 companies and, and even uh, smaller than Fortune 500, really kind of 500 million of revenue or higher businesses. And it was going along quite well until COVID hit. And then COVID hit and there was less high fives going around <laughs> to your point. Because um, here's the candid truth is that uh, when COVID hit, nobody was thinking like, I want to outsource things. I want to work with partners. Everyone at the beginning said, panic, panic, cut, cut everything out. I'm just going to hunker down. Now, six months, nine months, a year in COVID, everyone's like, oh, shit. This distributed workforce thing is real. This digital footprint I have, you know, to work in this new environment doesn't work. So they started figuring out that they needed to reinvent their digital footprints, both to work distributedly and to start working in the new new, if you will, of kind of, uh, you know, COVID with different, uh, you know, supply chains and distribution requirements, et cetera, et cetera. So COVID became tailwinds for Saida. And it's growing nicely now. Well, what happened in the interim is uh, it was my first deal. And when it was being challenged, um, the the leadership that I had in place, unfortunately, wasn't uh, taking the reins in a way that that uh, I saw a game plan that said, hey, we're going to get out of this. And so I made the decision to actually jump in and become I didn't give myself the CEO title because I knew I didn't want to ever run it long term. But my mindset was, wow, this is the first balanced capital partners deal. And this will be the last capital partners deal unless, you know, I, I try to jump in and, and take care of it. So from call it uh, May of uh, 2020, when, you know, a couple months after COVID hit until um, about October of last year, I was running it. So I restructured the firm. Now, there's where I called Francis Najafi up and said, I really thank you for knowing how to restructure firms. <laughs> because I didn't have to hire anyone. I was able to just kind of do that my own. I created a what, strategy. Yeah, so tell me about that. Like, how did you, like, what was the, what was the, <laughs> say it, what was the playbook, right, for that? <laughs> it just is like a, a zero sum, like, okay, I've got, you know, this revenue and this cost structure. Well, the revenue is too low to support that cost structure. So how do I do a zero sum rebuilding of the organization to have a sustainable, thriving business? So did you do that like on the task level? Like what exactly do you do leading to, you know, going down and then basically categorizing that into lumps and then putting the org chart around that? Yeah. Now I had an advantage because I was always a, quite involved in, in Saida, so I already knew a lot of that. Uh, but in some ways, it's not like I went around and interviewed everyone, but I interviewed and talked with my you know, top seven, eight, ten guys to drill down into that. Once I figured out what everyone was doing, I could reorganize the company with less resources and assigning more work to, or cutting out work as well. There was an element of like, hey, we're not going to do this anymore because it doesn't add value and reorganizing the workload that was taking place across a new organization with fewer people to right size the cost structure so that the company um, was cash flow positive. Got it. So it that's step number one. Right. Huh? 
And then, and then you brought in a new CEO. Well, after I restructured it, then I worked for, that was called it two, three months of work. The next two, three months was building the strategy under this new norm uh, called COVID. And so once I built the strategy, then I was able to identify through a lot of discussions uh, with you or one of them, which is like, okay, here's the new strategy. Here's what the company does. What are the attributes a CEO needs to have in order to most likely be successful executing that strategy? So once I honed in on those attributes, that's how I went uh, out and searched for the new CEO. Ian uh, Thurban is the new CEO, and he came in on board in uh, July of uh, last year. And so I then spent a few months transitioning uh, Ian in and transitioning myself out. And that's why then I was, uh, you know, by uh, by October, kind of back at the balanced capital partner level. So it looks rosy now because Ian's doing a great job and uh, is way better than me because I was average at best at being an operator. And that was a learning, honestly. It's like I had this ego of like, oh, my God, I can do this. Uh, and I forget how hard it is to be a great operator. It's terrible. And, huh? It's, it's absolutely terrible being an operator. I don't know why anybody would want to do it, but... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, and you know, and and I tell people all the time, it's like this true. I think it used to be back in the day that your true, you know, value of your network was how many money guys you you had in your Rolodex and how much capital that you could generate through connections. And I think now that everybody's a rich guy and there's a gazillion David and Jerry's out there, the true um, value of someone's network is how many people you know that are operators that can repeatedly add value towards organizations because I think there's far less of those people out there in the world. Yeah. And, you know, my analogy to great operators, I use a baseball uh, batting cage analogy. You ever gone to the batting cages? You know how they have cage with a 40 mile an hour pitch, 50, 60. I, no, I, I was an I was an awkward kid. I just did a lot of drugs and stuff. Oh, okay. I, didn't do, I, I didn't do healthy stuff like that. <laughs> well, I was to to I don't know. You you can uh, take healthy stuff and make it unhealthy too. <laughs> <laughs> That's a different story. <laughs> mm-hmm. But but my 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 experience was I could be in the 40, 50 mile an hour cages, and I wasn't great at baseball, but I was an athlete, and I could swing in those cages, make contact, drive the ball, etc. But then when I got up to 70 or 80 mile an hour batting cages, not only could I not hit the ball, all I heard was the thud of the ball hitting the rubber mat behind, you know, the plate. And that's what I think running uh, businesses is like, is the speed at which things move is a lot faster than, than what I think people realize. And if you don't have a CEO who can assess and, and maneuver in that speed, Usually execution suffers, and I think that's why that skill is is a really hard one to 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 hone, and that's why there's so few great value creators out there in in, in business. Takes a special breed. So you said something very interesting to me, and it's something that you know I resonate with as an emerging manager, new brand, new firm. Is that you said, you know that what Balanced Capital Partners is and what it invests in is was different than your first investment. And now Syed is at a point where it is something that you targeted. So can you tell me a little bit, was, was the Balanced Capital Partners 
um, original targets, investment targets, were they different or is, or is the investment thesis different now than it was when you first started? Did the thesis evolve or, you know, how did you look at that? It hasn't formally evolved yet, but yes, it's evolving because of the, the experience and the learning is when I take a step back and I look at Saida and I think about Ian running, Ian Thurban running Saida. Ian wasn't there at the beginning. So in many ways, when I'm doing the customer discovery, you know, that I mentioned earlier in our podcast here of talking to bankers and private equity, the reason I'm doing that is I'm thinking about tweaking the investment philosophy in order to really generate the value I think is out there through the soft stuff and the hard stuff. And the way I'm thinking about it is lower middle market technology companies but coming in, instead of just doing a leverage buyout, you know, buying 80% of the company using debt and equity, yes, do that. But then put more equity onto the company to underwrite a growth thesis and actually put capital on the balance sheet and using that to attract the Ian Thurbans of the world that normally would not be interested in running a small little company like this because it's just a family business or, you know, a nice little uh, lifestyle business. So in your world, there's growth, there's excitement, there's software, there's cutting edge, there's creation. So really talented guys go there. The other really talented guys go and, you know, run Eli Lilly and, you know, Morgan Stanley and all those kind of big jobs, you know, uh, out there. And they don't usually come into this sector. So changing my thesis so I can attract that talent that over that over punches, if you will, the weight class of the lower middle market is how I'm thinking of tweaking it. And it's really kind of a combination of growth equity and private equity into one. Um, and that I haven't done a deal like that uh, per se, but Saida is very close to having done that now that Ian's there. And that's what I think is where the real money, uh, where the realized returns are going to be. But finding that extra value I mean, that really has to rely on you because, you know, you're underwriting a business that is in the lower middle market, you know, probably a family business, $2 million of EBITDA, reasonable growth, but in a good industry, and you're putting more growth capital on the business. But how do you go from there, just a well-capitalized lower middle market business to, you know, developing a thesis of a growth story to attract the person? Well, I think it can happen one of two ways. I'm spending a lot of time um, cultivating relationships to generate a virtual bench of potential leaders. And if I happen to get a little bit lucky and find a company in an industry and a situation that lets me tap one of my virtual bench executives, then I could be doing it while we're doing it in diligence because the expert, not me, the expert would be looking at it and saying, well, the way I've operated in that industry and the trends I'm seeing and the experiences I've had lead me to say there's three options and the first two are crap and really this one's real. You can't, I can't do that because I don't have the experience in the various sectors I have. The other way to do it is um, leverage a consultant who helps me think about it somewhat to know that there's something there but I haven't had the ability to track the leader yet, but I do that within the first, you know, six to nine months of closing the deal. And that may be the reality of the timing it's in. So 
Mr. Family Owner is doing it, wants to transition out. We talk about it, be tr truthful and transparent, saying, hey, I need you to stay in for a year, year and a half. And it's because we're going to transition the guy, but let's not rush that until we find the right guy. And that may come post-closing. So it's either going to happen during diligence or possibly, you know, six, nine months uh, after closing. And I haven't done it yet to figure out how it would work, but that's the key piece. Without that, you know, next level leader, this whole idea doesn't work. And I wish I could say, oh, it's easy. I just hit this button, David, and all of it works. Voila. Uh, my concern with this thesis is it's it's overcomplicated. Um, and whenever I look at things, I always do things. Alignment of interest, like I said, I want to wear your jersey, wear my jersey. And then the KISS principle, keep it simple, keep it stupid. This is less simple than I would like, but I also think that in today's world, just buying and allocating capital uh, is two things, not a recipe for generating returns. And two, honestly, isn't what floats my boat anyway. So I'm an entrepreneur figuring out my product market fit to allocate uh, capital in a way that is a great path traveled and generates disproportionate upside for the investors. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Transitioning out now, it sounds great. Said is on its way, you know, honing the thesis, really excited to see the types of deals that you uh, are going to do in the upcoming years. Tell me a little bit about some of the, the greatest lessons you've learned in investing throughout your career. Uh, some lessons that you've learned from, you know, mentors, confidants, people that you've worked with. Some of the greatest lessons uh, I've learned is there, there are, I, I think it's honestly, some of it just comes down to what my parents taught me is just trust your instincts is it sounds simple. Uh, but when I'm looking in, in business, when I've made mistakes in business, there were little things inside of what I call my gut meter or, you know, my subconscious that I wasn't present enough to listen to, or I didn't want to listen to them to because it didn't align with this like little awesome little opportunity I was working with. And so just going slow enough to listen to those instincts, having the confidence to listen to those instincts so that um, you have the ability to leverage and use those insights. And by the way, use them with not just yourself, but communicate to your trusted network. You call it your loopers. Uh, well, it's the same thing that if I don't voice these little instincts I have and concerns, I just, you know, the craziness happens between this and this. I need to actually express it out loud to help, help people who see it differently and who are smart and experienced uh, help me see it in, in, a, in a more foundational way, a better way. Right. It's like investing through omission, right? <laughs> it's, you know, you, you are hiding something. You almost feel guilty about it. There's like this cover up of this, like this, like dirty little thing that's happening in this brilliant opportunity. But the truth is, is no deal is ever picture perfect. There's always some little nuance or trick that probably needs to be talked about. Right. And when I talk about it, uh, so it's both listen to your instincts and and ask for help is really the way I would say the other one is it's not even just talking about it. It's like, hey, can you help me think about this? And the word help it is foundational to me. It's like, hey, David, can you help me think about this? Because it's it's spaghetti in my head. 
I don't know how to think about it right now. I need some help. Because if I didn't need the help, I don't think I'd likely be talking to you about it per se. And uh, But not just a one-way street. It's like having the relationship to know that they can ask for help. Because it's a very selfish act to say, hey, I, I need some help. Unless you're also going to give. And so if you have that kind of help and giving element, uh, I think in investing is critical. I need some help. And then when someone asks for your help, you jump in and say, of course, how much, how high, when, how, I'll do it. And Yeah, and that's not fun. something that's very common in the private equity world. No, no. <laughs> especially <laughs> after you made business. the investment. Especially after you made the investment and things are going sideways. I mean, to, 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 to mutter that things are nothing less than crushing it is, it's almost sacrilege. Yeah, I always, uh, I think you've heard me say this in the past. I'm like, if I added up all of the verbal responses I get about how things are going, it's amazing, it's great, it's this, that, the other. I would then say to myself, why isn't GDP growing at 10% in our country year over year? Exactly. If everyone's doing that amazing. Yeah, yeah. Right, so. exactly. No, it's incredible. Yeah, it's like, you know, we're on it, well, it, it just kind of goes like to the fundamental, you know, problem of investor ego. It really is ego. And I don't think, David, it's just investor ego. I think it's ego. You know, we as human beings are, especially in the United States of America, the DNA of this country is ego. And the Industrial Revolution, Revolution was there for us to pounce on by leveraging ego. I also think that that creates a lot of the dysfunction we have in our society and all societies have dysfunction. I'm not saying I don't have it. I have dysfunction too. God, you're pretty I dysfunctional. I would say. Yeah. I mean, out of most people I know you're top, top five, capital D capital I capital S. <laughs> 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 the point is like the antithesis of ego is, you know, humility. Mm -hmm. It's, asking for help. It's, you know, collaboration, it's authenticity, it's all these things. And that's not what creates, that's not what created the robber barons and, you know, all of the original kind of up and comers and the new generation of the technology guys. And think about the, the irony of what this new generation who is purporting information and distribution. Bullshit. Mm -hmm. What they're doing and how they've become the next generation of uber ungodly wealthy has dysfunction in it because, yes, they have these platforms that's about information, but it's also about manipulation. It's also about control. And I think that that's starting to come to light, whether it's the Facebooks or even, you know, Microsoft, when the uh, antitrust issues came in. It's like all this we're for good, but yet we're for good as long as we control the good. Right. right. It's, uh, yeah, as long as you don't ask. Right. And that's the part. I'm, they were I'm so saying. good at staying out of the news for so long. <laughs> you know? And then all of a sudden, you know, they're, they're back at it. So it happens in your growth slows. Right. So, but anyway, I'm, I'm, I love this country. So I'm, I'm not crapping on it because it's terrible. I, I just think that it would help us all if we spoke with a little bit more candor and honesty and authenticity sometimes than just saying uh, everything's amazing. There's nothing wrong in, in my world. It's all roses and petals and, you know, unicorns and cotton candy. <laughs> and especially as an emerging manager.
Because if I had to tell everybody that everything was going great every second of the day, I literally would put a gun on my mouth. I mean, it is just way too stressful, A, working alone, and B, not being able to have outlets to be honest and authentic with other people. I also think that when you're honest to your investors, you get credibility. They know yeah. that it's not roses like this. So if you tell them the truth, um, I think it helps you raise capital, helps you stay with them. Now, obviously, at the end of the day, you're going to have to give them more money back than what they gave you for them to see the value long term. But there's a difference between giving them more money than what they invested uh, with you a year or three or five years ago, than the vernacular and the stories you spin throughout the time that they're working with you. They're just, they don't have to be, I think that uh, managers think that they're the same thing. Oh my God, I have to give them more money. And the only way I give them more money is I tell them amazing stories. No, mm-hmm. I don't think, you know, network solutions that uh, the Najafis did was the case in point. You know, there, there's an example. I haven't talked about it in a while, but they bought 85% of network solutions when they bought it as a carve out out of Verizon. They bought 85%. What was network solutions just for the audience? The domain name business. It was the original GoDaddy, if you will. Uh, It was the dominant, it was the monopoly of domain names before, uh, you know, the the government allowed there to be competition uh, of domain names. The only place you went to buy them was network solutions. So it had... uh, Gosh, by the time we bought it, there were competitors out there, but it still probably had 60, 70% market share. But it was a special situation and it was, mm-hmm. you know, going down. And that one worked phenomenally back then. But it was $100 million for 85% of the company. It was doing $33 million of cash flow a year. Now, it had been dropping, but uh, the man. $100 million was- and it was doing $33 million of cash flow. Yeah. That's. Uh- those were the days, right? Those were the days. And a year into the transaction, there was a that the the hundred million was twenty million of equity, eighty million of debt, forty million from Cerberus, and forty million unsecured seller note from Verisign itself. Subordinated wow. unsecured. Wow. So a year in, we did a credit Swiss. Uh, debt for 80 million, used the cash on the balance sheet, distributed out the equity that was invested, that 20 million originally. So now it was house money a year in, and two years later, it was sold for $800 million. Now, so three years total. Well, what value creation happened for it to. The man was just getting out of the distressed component or the special sit component, or like what, what, what materially happened? Because that's a huge delta. Yeah, they stabilized the, the the decline and created bundled services and essentially threw the customer service number everywhere so that they could um, talk to plumbers and construction guys and everyone that was getting online with websites and marketing online through SEO. Because remember back then, these concepts of SEO and paid search and all these things, they weren't commonplace. This was 2000 and three, four, five, and six. They were just kind of coming of age. So they created these bundled solutions for these small businesses to get online, be found online, and make money online, and put the customer service there so you could call them 24-7. Because you were working from 6 a.m. to 10 p.m. in your job. So that value, bundled, and customer service led small and medium-sized businesses to come back 
and buy a ton from Network Solutions. So that 33 million of cash flow uh, went to 80 million by the time we sold it. It was, it was sold for 10 times uh, EBITDA when it was sold. So there was a lot of value creation, and it was because and, and what and what what period of time? Three years. Wow, it's crazy. See, invest in, investing is easy. Man, you yeah. just have to do little simple things like that. Well, I remember the CEO who really should get the credit for him and he would give credit to his team was a guy named Champ Mitchell. And Champ used to say, you know, you guys are so I'd work for, I, I, I work for a guy named Champ in, in a you heartbeat. Did? I know I would. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. Well, he's an ex-Marine. And I'm telling you, anyone who worked for him would charge hills like they, they he was a leader and he mm-hmm. was a tough love, old school leader. But man. People followed him, and um, but he would always say how spoiled we were. He's like, you don't even realize how much of an outlier this is, how this doesn't happen, all this stuff, uh, because it was the first deal in private equity that uh, the Najafis did and that I was working on. And let's just say Champ was absolutely understated in his correctness. <laughs> Did, uh, did the Najafis and you kind of have a little King Midas syndrome after that, having such a great return on your first deal? Yeah, there might be some truth to that. <laughs> yeah, of course. Who wouldn't? But anyway, my point in, uh, in saying that was that, you know, uh, it really was just that the, the model of like that actually was the special situation growth scenario. It combined it all in one. And that is a unicorn that never happened mm-hmm. till your next deal. Well, no, <laughs> no. <laughs> Getting a seven, I think the, the IRR on that was 1300 and some percentage. No, those that kinds was, of IRRs don't take place. Yeah. Um, that's uh that was a, that was a lightning in a bottle type of situation. Yeah. Uh, what are you reading right now? I just finished reading Talent is Not Enough uh, and The Four Agreements. I reread that for the third time. Um, and I think I'm going to jump into The Creator's Code, uh, written by Amy Wilkinson, who's uh, uh, someone I know at Stanford and uh, I want to collaborate with on, on creating a little more structured matrix on how to evaluate leaders. Uh, as we're doing our due diligence process and the creator's code was kind of like the, the attributes that all success that in her view, all successful uh, Silicon Valley leaders had in creating their success. And so I want to read it before I talk to Amy so I can actually have a little sense of, uh, you know, knowledge. I say knowledge in quotes uh, when I talk to her. Yeah. You should quote her. Quote her quote herself. Yeah, quarters for myself. Everyone likes that. Yeah, (laughs) everyone likes that. Jerry, it's been awesome having you on the pod. Um, Thank you so much. And, you know, definitely have to get you on a little bit later once you uh, close your next deal. Super excited about it. You're listening to the Capital Stack podcast where we talk to the world's best investors, entrepreneurs, operators to get a little bit smarter in this crazy world of of capital allocation and value creation. And we are going to be dropping every Thursday on all your favorite podcasting applications, Spotify, Apple, what have you. 
and we will see you next week. Thanks a lot. Thank you for tuning in to the Capital Stack Podcast. Make sure to share this with someone you know that can benefit from this content. Remember to support this show by rating, reviewing, and subscribing. David Paul is the founder and general partner at DWP Capital. All opinions expressed by David and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of DWP Capital. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for decisions. David and guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed on this podcast.